Hey guys, and welcome to episode 16 of the Grad Life podcast. We're very lucky to have with us here this evening Killian Hilliard, who is a former member of the Bank of Ireland Corporate Finance IBI team and is now a venture capitalist associate in the uh, well-renowned Atlantic Bridge venture capital firm here in Dublin. Yeah, thanks for having me. Very excited to be here and yeah, hopefully I can give a few nuggets of useful information. I actually love having you here because you told me, um, was it in Thailand that you said that you liked the podcast and that, uh, that you're getting value from it, so it's very cool to have you. Yeah, I remember that. Actually, I hadn't seen you in a couple of years and the first time I see you is at full moon. Full moon party. Exactly. I think within 20 minutes we were talking about our favourite book. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, no, that was good. Um, so tell us about your background. You obviously did economics and finance in UCD. Yeah, so went, did economics and finance in UCD. I guess kind of reason for picking that wasn't too clued into, you know, the finance world prior to college and just really picked it. Like UCD, like the course, was heavy in maths and wasn't too many people in it. So I think at the time there was a class size of like 35. So that kind of appealed to me. So I got that and went in and... Yeah, really liked that course, got on very well. I'd say main reason I kind of talk highly of that course, not necessarily the course content, but the people in there, you know, you got these like super, super driven people coming straight into first year in college, telling me they want to, you know, trade derivatives or they want to do M&A for Goldman Sachs. And, you know, I went in there, <laughs> who's Goldman Sachs? <laughs> yeah, I don't know him. <laughs> Yeah, so it, was, it was really good to be around and really driven people who kind of pushed me along and kind of got me into that scene and kind of understanding that your career kind of has to start early in college and if you just start your job applications at the very end of college, chances are you're going to do a master's mm. if you want to find the job you want. So it was really great and also very driven, but it was a great group of people in there as well. Yeah, I remember obviously we would have been in a couple of classes with you guys and and the economics and finance guys, I was just in straight commerce. The Ek and Fi guys had a much more intense culture. There was a higher standard there, for sure. Um, possibly of intelligence, not, not necessarily, but more often than not. But definitely just of work ethic and intensity. They knew what they wanted to do. And yeah. they were just not screwing around and going after it. Yeah, speaking, I guess, for the class as a whole, most people were very clued and very driven doing internships, you know, first year after first year summer, second year summer, and then get their job. I remember I was, I did get a lot more clued in later on in, in the second and third year, but I remember my first year talking to one of the super driven guys and telling them how like, you know, first year results don't matter as most young college kids don't think. Yeah. He, was, he was like talking about, oh, you need it for your, your internship in first or second year. It's like, what's he talking about? I'm going on J1 for, for a summer. That, so internship year. wasn't even on the radar for you? No, I started out, well, if you kind of look at the people who go into that course, or a lot of people anyway, like they might come, their family might be in finance, or might be in the private sector, whereas like, my parents were in public sector, so I wasn't really kind of clued into that yeah. thing at all, but I always had an interest in finance, and it seemed like one of the best courses out there, so I went into it, and then being around all that, that the driven people kind of centered me in thinking about what I want to do, and taking it a bit more seriously, so my second and third year got a lot more involved, the first year was a bit of a... I yeah, had a lot of fun. That was a fun. Take it too seriously. So throughout the course, then four years. It's three years, but there's the option to take a year out. Okay. Do like work experience. Right, right, right. You, did you do that? 
So I didn't officially do it. I kind of went down my own route. So I did it two years and was getting on really well. But I skipped TY in secondary school, so I was pretty young. So if I went into third year, I would have been finished college at 20, which is pretty young. And at the time, I realized I also wasn't the most mature 20 year old or 19 right. year old at the time. So I was going to take the year out, but I didn't actually, at the time, but right now, I think they have a work experience lined up. But at the time, they didn't have for us, and it wasn't everybody got to do it. Nobody yeah. did. Well, I went to Vancouver for the summer of 2013 or 2012, just for a summer, and got a job as like a business to business salesperson. I absolutely loved it. I was having a great time. So I think it was like August, I called up the Queen School and told them I was going to defer a year so I could stay in, in Vancouver to, to just keep being a business to business salesman, which I love. So I did that and I stayed, stayed over in Vancouver up until, until Christmas. And yeah, that was a great fun job. So I was literally going from door to door in Vancouver City, knocking on business doors, trying to sell them like credit card services. Yeah. And like, it, was, it was such a funny culture. Like, it was so American or you know, North American. You go in in the morning for like 8 a.m. and you'll like a couple of people will do like motivating speeches that like you made the morning no before. No way. And then really? at, at the end of the day, if you come back and you've like got over $100 sales, you like ring a bell and everyone starts like, like clapping and everything yeah. else. It was hilarious. But it was a great experience, great both experience. life and business. Yeah, absolutely. It was, it was brilliant. Just learning sales is such a beast as well. Before going into it, you don't realize yeah. it's such an art. Like there's so much to it. There's so much more it's to sales. Learn, and yeah, got to learn a lot still. Nowhere near great, but got number one sales rep rep in Canada for a month of August. No way. So that was cool. Nice. Bit of luck and Irish charm, but yeah, that yeah, would go a long way over there. Good to get. Um, that's brilliant. And uh, internships then? Did you do for the other summers of college internships? No, I didn't actually. I just, for uh, want of a better word, kind of shows life and did right, the okay. internship route, which is a bit atypical for that course. Yeah, and that's what I want to talk about. So, like, as I say, in economics and finance, you got this very intense group of people, a small cohort, a cohort, maybe 35 people or whatever, and they know exactly what they want to do. And they're doing first, second, third year internships, not messing around. And... A lot of people in that situation who are pursuing either exactly that finance or a similarly intense pursuit maybe feel the pressure that they can't go off and do J1s or have the fun in Vancouver or whatever it might be and that they have to do this path to remain competitive. Yeah. What's your take on that since you did do, as you say, the atypical route? I think like first year, first and second year, especially for like a four-year course, you don't necessarily need to do an internship. If you want to get into, you know, the best IBs in London, you probably, like, in your third year, you definitely do have to do it. Like, you just, you wouldn't get in if you didn't have it yeah. on, your, on your CV. Maybe do, like, a spring week in your second year, take the first year handy. But, like, whatever advice you give, there's super driven people out there that no matter what are just going to do the internship every summer. Mm. Is it a point of differentiation? So you've got... Um, say Killian and Mark go both go for the M and A role at Goldman Sachs, and Killian has this amazing life experience over in Vancouver, and he's a very very well rounded person, and you can see that he's worldly, etc. And Mark has just done internship, internship, internship. I might be able to speak really well about the technical aspects of the job, or be very well sort of corporately polished by that yeah. stage. You wouldn't be, but you come across much better in terms of a, a developed human. 
Do you think that plays to the mind of a recruiter in that area or should people really be leaning towards the corporate experience there? I think it's so industry specific. So when I was in uh, in IBI corporate finance, the M&A house, like any time you're looking at internships, you don't want somebody who you know has been traveling the whole time. You want someone who's super keen, who's going to be willing to work late, who's going to be corporate polished, as you say. Yeah. So it's very industry specific. So for investment banking, I think they're always going to prefer the person who's just super keen, works hard. And does all the internships but if it's marketing or if it's any kind of tech company that are a bit more rounded then the then the person who went traveling and did the kind of weird jobs and did summers away and got kind of different life experiences that that might be that might be better yeah yeah so investment banking i'm pretty sure they'll go for the the kind of keen worker who's done the done the internships yeah unfortunately okay but it speaks to like what kind of person they want. They want someone who's super, super keen, who wants to just work really hard. And the nature of the work doesn't exactly require to be worldly or anything like that. It's just can you get through these numbers and make sense of it and, and provide yeah, it's all like, the... Are you kind of can you speak well? Are you polished? Do you look good in a suit? And are you willing to, you know, sacrifice a decent portion of your life? <laughs> yeah. For for the sake of the team. What? That's, apart from um Apart from financial motivations, which are obvious and, and very kind of well documented in that area, what else do people who go into this look for or get stimulated by from your experience? So if we're going to look at investment banking, where it was, like the, I've always kind of wanted, I read a book called The Buy Side, Attorney Gulf, and it was all about hedge funds, but it kind of spoke to the buy side. Right. So all along I wanted to get on that side and I've kind of taught VCs as far as I was interesting. Reason to go into that later. So my big reason for going into investment banking was the route to kind of for example say private equity or the venture capital kind of category. One of the best routes to that is through investment banking. Sure. So my my motivation for being there and working really hard wasn't necessarily so I could get big bonus or get paid this slightly more than your typical grad in Dublin, it was so I could be in the best position to get a job that I really want long term. And then there's different motivations for an actual job long term. Mm. So and we'll get into that yeah, for sure. Yeah, exactly. So for me, it wasn't financial really yeah. at all. I it never, was a strategy. I never, I never really thought I'd be there for more than two, three years. Okay. But it's really, really good place to learn and pick up your M&A toolkit, which comes in handy. Yeah. Um, a lot. So you're coming from the economics and finance background where everyone knows what they're going to do. I'm coming from the commerce one where I know that there's a lot of people out there who will be wondering if finance is for them, but they won't have done the same amount of research as the Econ5 guys. So could you quickly delve into buy side, sell side and other aspects um, of the M&A world that these guys should kind of brush up on? Yeah, sure. So looking at the M&A world and like kind of company transactions, Buy side is you're the person making a decision on making an investment or buying a company, hence the buy side. And then sell side is you would be, so that would be like, the, the broad category is called private equity. And within private equity, you have all sorts of different subcategories and venture capital is one of them. Growth investment is another, debt investment, that's, that's another. So private equity 
is the buy side for kind of M and A, and then M and then M and A advisory is the sell side. So a lot, a lot of what I'd be doing back in RDI would be selling a business. So essentially, you're, you know, a well-dressed car salesman, but the the car is pretty complicated, and there's a lot of different accounts and an awful lot going on. So you're selling a business. You're trying to paint it in the best light possible and get the highest price possible. So a private business owner comes to you guys, say, guys, I want to retire. I want to cash in on this business. Can you guys sell it for me? And then you go around in your suits, etc., and sell it to private equity companies. Private equity or trade, and that would be that would be IBI's kind of bread and butter. But we'd also do stuff like advising, like you say, a private equity firm or a trade firm on buying another company. Yeah. So there's that as well, and then there's mergers as well of two different companies coming together. Yeah. Mainly, I'd say the bulk of work of the idea was kind of sell side mandates, but I would have done quite a bit of advising on buy side. Okay. So advising them private equity players who were going to buy another firm. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And you think buy side by Tony Duff is a good book for these guys to to get into that? It's a lot more weighted towards. So I'm not a big reader, but I read I, I read this one back in college, and that kind of put me towards. The buy side, but this book is actually a lot more on the kind of the trading side of investment banking and uh, buy side. So the, if you look at like the trading and equity capital markets and capital market side of it, the buy side is hedge funds. So they buy stocks, they buy all sorts of yeah. different kind of liquid assets, and then the sell side would be like your investment bank who do equity capital markets. So they do like IPOs and you know raise money from shares on on capital markets. Yeah. So that book is specifically on. The kind of capital markets I hate for us, but it kind of opened up the world of buy side in general to me. Yeah, okay. A good bit more research. Yeah, there's online. lots, there's lots and lots online for that sort of stuff. There's some really good um, hedge fund books that I actually read as well, including one called More Money Than God, which I didn't buy, it was bought already. Um, this is a crazy name for a book, but it's about um. Uh, Paul Tudor Jones, Stan Miller, all these major hedge fund players in New York and, and America in the 90s, more so than 80s, 90s, early 2000s. Fascinating characters, even if you're not that into um, finance, and I was only half into it, into finance, but I, I still found it a very interesting book, because it is, at the end of the day, it is business. Yeah, sure, no, it's definitely, definitely interesting. Yeah. Before we move on from the college years, two things I really want to ask you about. One is toilets. And the other one is um, the UN. So we'll start with toilets. Okay. Yourself and our mutual friend, Pierce Healy, um, <laughs> said about uh, the natural toilet company as part of a McKinsey consulting group uh, yes. competition. Yes, this is a lot of fun, the natural toilet company. So it's basically it was a competition where you have to come up with a social enterprise. And a social enterprise is basically a charity that funds itself through you know commercial operations. So it's not relying yeah. on donations, it can make money and then fund itself. The idea was to come up with one of them. So me and Pierce got together and pulled a team, made from Trinity, and then I was kind of all off from UCD. And we came up with the idea after a lot of research online, natural toilet company. Basically, what it was is if you look at India, it's really big population. There's a lot of problems there, two of which are one is sanitation in rivers, which is for drinking water and you know, washing a lot of times and everything like that. So a lot of sewage was going in there, going into the water. And then another problem they have is, you know, the farmland is being pretty intense agriculture in on all the land and it's tough to get to get fertilizer. 
So we kind of put the two problems together where we would build toilets in India that people could use and this would automatically turn into a fertilizer for the land. So we had like an engineer on board who came up with a plan and our marketing person, I think that's the finance person, Healy was, or Pierce was, Mr. Strategy. So we kind of put like a, a business plan together in the application and it got through to, it was basically the, the, the Irish winner. So we got brought over to London, kind of like the, the finals or whatever. And we had to make a video. I don't know if you've seen the video. It's on. It's on my LinkedIn. It's I, did, I didn't see it. Hilarious. We were having a look at just young, young fools, but that was really good. We got brought over. Met a lot of, a lot of McKinsey team were big into social enterprise, and a lot of social entrepreneurs as well. Right. Really cool of me to hear like a lot of really good ideas. Already probably wouldn't have worked. Like the finances were already there. It was a little bit crude in its approach. But yeah. Could have been flushing, flushing your career away. It was great to do, man. Yeah, so <laughs> that's how good it was. I missed it. Um, great thing to do. Yeah, definitely. Like my first year in college, I didn't do anything like that. Steered very clear. Similar in second year, but then in third year or second year, I did do that. So I started doing these kind of things. That was a lot of fun. Yeah, learning a lot. You just have a blast. You end up getting brought to cool places, like getting over to London for the day. And engaging with incredible companies like McKinsey as well. Yeah, exactly. um, and meeting very high caliber students and, as you say, social entrepreneurs. Um, from the question which comes at the end, usually as part of the quickfire round, is like, what's something you wish you did in college that you didn't do? Most people say, I'm not asking you now, but most people say something like that. Yeah. Uh, kind of competition like that, or worked on a business plan with some friends, or whatever it might be. Yeah. Um, so you did get a lot out of, out of doing that. Yeah, definitely. That no, was really good. I definitely recommend doing that type of thing. And then also something else you got involved in was a delegate for Harvard with the Model UN. Yeah, so this, this was an awful lot of fun. This was in my, uh, in my third year. I think there was a group of like 15, 20 of us, and we were representing Panama, so we weren't exactly you know, on the oh, you were just council or anything. Okay. So we were representing Ireland, our actual country. You don't do your own country, you get a different country. Right, okay. So, yeah, we were representing Panama, and the topic I got was uh, nuclear proliferation. But um, the actual event itself was brilliant. We went over to Boston uh, and took part in this big competition. Basically, the whole whole hotel is full of all these different conference rooms, and each conference room has a different topic. And basically, they just throw out this topic that everyone has to agree on. And everyone in the room, each person represents a different country, and everyone's trying to you know do their best for their own country. Have to come up with like a resolution that everyone or majority agrees yeah. on. Yeah, it's it's fascinating. It's like we never. Like the whole group, it was like a, it only happened to like used to be sent over team the year before. So this was the second year. So none of us had any, you know, UN, model UN experience. Like yeah. But then you're going into, you know, the World Cup of model UN. Unbelievable. And these people are just unbelievable at public speaking and just coming over to you, trying to get you on their side, like just have so yeah. much You were just blown away at how good everyone was at it. So you're a little bit of a, like you do try and get involved, but. You still have the experience here, a yeah. little bit of a spectator, but it was brilliant to do. And probably the best thing about it was was going over with a group from UCD. And UCD, you know yourself, you kind of you can only like you have your friends there. It's hard to interact with, yeah, um, especially across commerce or across any other of the of the courses. Yeah, agreed. But there went over, didn't actually know. I knew one person going over, and the rest of the fifteen, I'm still very good friends with them today. So right, go out for pints or whatever. With yeah. Them 
they're a great group. So That's I'm very really cool. Delighted I did that. I'm You'd be sure. meeting and coming across some future world leaders there, for sure. Did you come back with, oh my God, that's the standard? Yeah, it's very blown away. Not like the standard for, you know, necessarily what I want to do, but like that's the standard for the like volume or safe baiting. And yeah. Very blowy away. Yeah. Like you were able to give your speech and it was fine, but like it was... That would be incredible to, to see. what I saw there. Um, but you came back and you got your grades and you got your job in, in uh, Bank yes. of Ireland then. Yeah, and like getting the job, the best things to have are, you know, that natural photo company, talk about that. Yeah. Because you just look like you're keen, you look like you're, you kinda, you're into... You've got energy. Extracurriculars are always yeah. like a really good thing. They're great fun as well. Plus, you see, it's so hard to make friends with people outside your course. Yeah. And then doing them things where you're just put in a group, you're going to make friends. Yeah. And that's a big part of it, I think. We just meet new people and just have a bit of fun. Yeah. And so when it's, it seems to be well documented that it's very rare for someone to get into Barclays, Goldman, JP Morgan, Morgan Stanley, any Deutsche, any of those places in London without a first class honours. Yeah. Did the same apply to Bank of Ireland, AIB or whoever else is in, in Ireland doing this stuff? No, I don't think so. So it's, a, it's you know, by the nature of a beast, Ireland's four million people. It's smaller, you know, yeah. The UK is so much bigger and it's, you know, RUB's centre of the financial world. So the competition is, as a function, going to be a bit less. You don't yeah. necessarily need a 2-1, no. Okay. Once, like, I, I, even with the investment banks in, even in bullish rap investment banks in London, a lot of times you don't necessarily need a 2-1. You right. can just spin it with low-grade internships. You don't necessarily need a 2-1 or a... Sorry. A first. A first. A first. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You no, need a 2-1. Yeah, need yeah two for sure. But you don't necessarily need a first. But, you know, you're better off getting it. Yeah, okay. And ways of increasing your employability for these people are things like the toilet project, maybe a J-1 you can talk about. I, I definitely think, particularly in relation to finance, reading up on the stuff, reading books like uh, Tony Duff, etc., yes, and was, actually knowing about the content. That was a, a big one thing we set up actually while we were in second year was the it's now called the for, yeah it's the Investors and Entrepreneurs Society. So I helped out setting that up, and it basically started as one of the kind of super ambitious, driven guys in the course was like like he's throwing off interviews. And you want to know what's going on in the financial world. But when you're in like college, you're not reading Financial Times. Yeah. Because you're just not. <laughs> you're doing other things. Yeah. So what we do is every two weeks we meet up and we pick like three articles. And everyone would read the three articles. And then we'd all come in and discuss the three topics just as a group. And the people who are really clued in can give their opinions, which help the people who aren't so clued in. Yeah. And it was just like, kind of formed as just a good little, little extracurricular thing. And then that kind of pushed on from there and I think there was a couple of guys trying to start like an entrepreneur society. Right. So you kind of combine the both the both of them and came up with investors and entrepreneur society. And that's now I think I was talking to um, a current econ or economics and finance grad and he said I think it's the seventh largest society in UCD now. So it's a real big success. Really? So good to see it. That's brilliant. Moving on. That that uh, FT Financial Times Club is a great idea, and do it over beers, do it like whatever you know, just yeah, exactly. learn from each other and, and get engaged. Um, focusing on the job in Bank of or yeah, yeah. Bank of Ireland, you're doing um, buy side transactions. What's the best and worst part of a job? Well, actually, like that? Maybe I'll just give you a quick overview of the Bank of Ireland graduate program. Sure. Just so you understand, so it's a two-year program, and you're supposed to do three eight-month rotations across the bank. So across the kind of corporate uh, bank, so there's like 
you know, all sorts of lending there, be it property, just normal corporate challenge. There's the kind of gut, the capital markets piece, which is a lot of FX trading, kind of specialized products. And then there's the kind of M&A investment banking piece, which is the what we've kind of spoken about already. Yeah. And initially I went in, I chose Bank of Ireland because IBI, corporate finance, which it had a separate, separate brand at the time. Okay. It was still under the Bank of Ireland group. Okay. Since then it's bought itself out, it's actually independent, but at the time it was still part of the Bank of Ireland group. Okay. But it had that different brand. Didn't and the reason I kind of went after the Bank of Ireland credit program specifically was because I really like the look of IBI. Because, you know, if you look at the the league tables, which are like, you know, who does the most deals in Ireland each year, you know, they're always at the top. So right. They were the ones to go for in Ireland. So that's why I, I did the Bank of Ireland credit program. But with these rotations, you got loads of grads who want to go, you know, everyone puts their hand up who wants to go to IBI or there's certain rotations that are sought after. So the first rotation, I didn't actually get it, even after requesting. So I was in corporate banking in Bank of Ireland. The corporate banking was basically lending money to corporates of Ireland. So this is the first eight months, and then I moved up to, to IBI to do the M&A. And then I was there for like two two years. Okay. Yeah. What's the worst part about that job? The worst part is... The obvious answer there is like just the hours. You're just what are you looking at by way of hours? Like, thankfully, it's not it's not as bad as London. It's like London, like you're looking probably like average, what seventy, eighty. Like you have your hundred hour weeks, and then you probably have like maybe minimum seventy. Right. But in, in IBI, it wasn't as bad. But you're still doing probably on average around like sixty. So it's still quite a lot. Twelve hour days. Like for two years a lot of money. like there's there's times you're you're doing the loop, which is like, you know, you work right through to the next morning. Yeah. Meetings in the morning, you just have to go right through. Yeah. And like like times my friends just like, what is wrong with you? Like what what are you doing in there? Yeah. Are they paying you loads? It's just like not enough. Like your hourly rate is not that high when you're when you're junior in investment banking. So yeah, I'd say the worst part would be just you're expected to stay in there. Like really late, right? Okay. A, a, a transaction room. And I guess this is the answer to that question that your friends asked. What is what's the best part about it? Like, what is the reason that you put up with it and do it and stick with it? Yeah, it's just genuine. Like, it's very interesting. So I kind of always found the financial world interesting. And then if you kind of look at the different buckets, I think like M and A is probably the most interesting because it's kind of it's market sensitive news. So like, if you were to go tell to a paper, sometimes it actually might move stock prices. So. Yeah, it's kind of cool knowing that and working on working on a transaction that kind of importance and kind of scale. And what I liked about it most is just probably like it was fairly challenging, especially at the start, because you're learning so many new things. There's so many different accounting phrases you have no idea about. Like I did accountancy in like secondary school, but didn't really do too much of it through mm. college. So just learning an awful lot, and it's quite quite challenging. So and by way of culture, is it enjoyable or is it just flat out intense? Uh, culture, you can general investment banking culture isn't amazing. It's you know whoever works the works the hardest is best, which is you know pretty awful culture. Really, you'd prefer to see the best person as the person who gets the most work done. Yeah, respected, he's there the longest. But the culture of young was actually pretty good in the fact that you know you're pushed so hard, you're pushed really hard to work long hours. But there was a really tight knit group of kind of juniors there. When I say juniors, I'm gonna say from like you know, 30 downwards, you had like the directors and then you had kind of had a level below that of kind of say managers and executives 
what we were. And we were very close and like had a lot of fun. Like there was always lots of jokes. We go for pints like after work quite often. Right. So, like when you're getting kind of when you're getting work very hard, you kind of bond a lot more with people there. Oh, for sure. Also, yeah. There at like three a.m. with your with your buddy, it's you know doing some model or like changing some presentation, put comments through the presentation. You're kind of you build a pretty strong bond. Yeah. So that's what. The kind of culture side that I really love. Yeah, and just um, just in case the hours weren't long enough for you, you then decided to take on the CFA, which is internationally known to be the most <laughs> grueling exams you can do. So, um, CFA, what does that stand for? Charter Charter Financial, financial Analyst. Analyst. Yeah, yeah. I thought, I thought, <laughs> you put me in the spot there. No, no, because no, my, my brother did a bit of it, and I was wondering, is it corporate finance or yeah, Charter Financial Analyst? Yeah. Um, and I remember looking at number one, it covers a fair bit of accounting and then a lot of corporate finance talks about uh, capital markets. Yeah, it covers like, it is really helpful. CFA, so like, it covers right across finance. So it'd be like ethics, which is a big part, but then there's, you know, quantitative methods, there's accounting, there's, you look at the rate books, you look at fixed income, you look at equity. So it's, it's really, really broad and it is very helpful for if you want to, you know, have really good financial knowledge and like just kind of really understand analysis and kind of portfolio management side. It's not necessary by any means. Right. Like, Did they tell you that before or after? Yeah. <laughs> it's kind of time like when you're in Dublin, especially in Dublin, for some reason like you know, 99% of people coming out of college are doing the accountancy exams. Like everyone just seems to be an accountant or like yeah. doing accountancy. So you kind of feel like oh, I should be doing something here. And I mean, I actually pushed really hard for me to do the accountancy because doing accountancy is arguably more helpful for investment banking because it's so accountant. Like, sure. Accountancy well, private accountant equity, I'd say, in particular, would be. Private equity, yeah, the, the same amount. Yeah, similar. But they pushed pretty hard for me to do accountancy, but I just want, I prefer this being a little bit different. I didn't want to just put myself in the same bucket as. Yeah. You know, so many people in Dublin, so I wanted to do something different. And that was my main driver for doing CFA. Other driver, also with accountancy, you've got lectures in the weekends, which just couldn't do it. I'd learn way better by myself, just figuring out as opposed to sure. someone telling me what's going on. Yeah. So the CFA suited a lot more. And in terms of like the qualification, like masters are quite expensive. The accountancy, I know it's free, but you know, the opportunity cost of your salary and all the overtime you have to do to actually do that exam yeah. is really expensive. It's quite bad value, then, yeah. Yeah, it's terrible value. Well, not terrible, not that great, but CFA, I think, in total, it costs about three grand. So Yeah, so if we talk about each of the costs, so the, the, the monetary cost is three grand for the, for the full course. Yeah, in the yeah. Okay. We probably don't have the exact for the round three. Yeah. Um, sign up is it likely that your company would pay for it? Yeah, so i got to pay for it. Brilliant. Yeah. The uh, hourly cost, how many hours did you put into passing this? So like, I, like, the first level, it says you should do 300 hours. And the first level, I started pretty late and I went in kind of arrogant, you know, came from an equity like I know most of the stuff already. But then I was really kind of rushing at the end, a little bit panic study because I left it so long and it was more challenging than I thought it would be. Yeah. I'd say I probably did around 200 hours for the first one. 200 that's, hours, okay. So that's, that's a, a good bit. And for someone with like, for someone with no finance degree, you just have to do 300 hours. Yeah. And then for level two, like I, I love going into exams and thinking I'll be grand and study the minimum and, you know, just get lucky or whatever. But like that just wasn't the case with CFA at all. Yeah. You really just, 
and had to probably do full 300 hours for level two and three. And how do you add 300 hours onto your already hectic working schedule? Do you do two hours a day for a quarter or do you do... The way I did it is, um, I always work best in the morning, so the evenings I'm just out of energy and I can't study, I just physically can't. I yeah. don't I ever, I didn't do one hour after work, even if I was off early. I always come in, I just got in, I'd be set up for 7am, two hours study and then start work. And you know, you aim to do that five days a week. So you do it five days a week, once ever. Right. So you usually, usually get it like three or four times a week. Yeah. And then the weekends, depending, you know, how, how kind of stressed you think you are about the exam, you'll either do five hours on Saturday and Sunday, or just five hours on Saturday. Okay. And that's the last cost, the stress cost. Is it very stressful to do for the couple of years? It's... It does, does it was. weigh on you continuously, or just in, uh, in weight? No, there's... There's like what constant weight. So you're studying, say level two. I would have started like studying in February, right up to the very end of May. Or the exam, I think, something like the second of June or something. The June bank holiday on a Saturday. That is not a great day, but anyway. But yeah, you weigh on you constantly right away up to the exam because every single time you're having a drink or out, you know, doing a hobby or something, you're thinking, oh, I should have yeah. studied. Or when you miss a day, study, you're like that day silly like this exam's coming up and it can be a little bit stressful yeah and it, it's a bit more stressful when you got a job it's pretty demanding as well and there's a lot of hours yeah so arguably didn't have a balance locked down back then might have uh, waited a little bit too much towards study and work right but i think it is the age to do it if you are going to do it yeah so, sure yeah, i think so as well is it the right thing to do arguably not but no. glad it's done i uh well, firstly, with anything like that, I pe think people who have done these things always claim that they're not as valuable as the, as they thought they would be at, at first. Yeah. But I think, like looking at you now, and it's gotten you to where you want to be, and yeah, um, that definitely help. And I'd say to anyone actually thinking about doing the CFA, it's like you said at the very start, like it's the most grueling exam, but it's like it's definitely grueling as in it's tough, but it's not. It doesn't take a genius to do like okay. any of the stuff. Anyone. Could figure out anyone who's passed a college degree has the capacity to get through the CFA. So it's content it's heavy. It's, yeah, it's so content heavy. Okay. It just takes time and it's just tenacity to just keep going, yeah. get your head around it, move on, and then keep that all in your head. So it's really just diligence, yeah, as opposed to you know a super high IQ. So yeah, sure. Now that, I think that's very good for people to work in. I'd go for it. I wouldn't be afraid of it. One thing I think. Um, so, and a set of exams like that. So you walk into an interview and someone used to talk about CFA. It doesn't just say, I'm a black belt in finance. It says, I'm able to take on 300 hours worth of work above what I'm doing and perform both tasks at a high, high level. It says a lot more about the person than just their financial credentials. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, it, it does have a good brand in that, yeah. in that sense. And it's, it's a bit unfair on the accountants because like, I've talked to people who've done accountancy uh, we've actually done the accounts exams and the CFA. Right. And like they said, like in terms of toughness, it's hard to tell. Like it could easily be the same. Really? Because uh, I've heard what you're talking about. I've heard about the CFA being much harder. I didn't know. Yeah. Like, I guess it really depends on the person where your strengths lie. I'm quite sure. Quantitative. So and it's quite quantitative. So it might have suited me. Yeah. But I don't know. But it seems like it has a really, it has a it definitely has a really strong global brand for being really tough. So, well done, CFA, Marvin. Yeah, <laughs> fair play. Um, and it's gotten you to where you want to be, which is now, Atlantic Ridge. Yeah. So, definitely. venture capital at long last. 
Absolutely. So yeah, this yeah. is the question we deferred at the start. Why venture capital? Why did, why did that interest you for so long? I'd say, and just to, just to qualify that, I wasn't like day one college, I want to be venture capital. Right. I, wasn't, I wasn't like that clued in. I was like, I'd love to be on the buy side. Even going to Bank of Ireland, I was like, I kind of had in my head that maybe I want to do trading and maybe I want to do hedge funding. So I was never like 100% sure. Yeah. Just so there is no one, people are rarely like, yeah, so well, well, yeah. And what happened actually in Bank of Ireland, I went onto the trading floor and just kind of saw it all. And the reason I didn't do, didn't go down that route was because you're just all your skills are going towards you know winning this game on your computer, and there's very little to do with meeting other people and your communication skills and your, your personal skills. Yeah, so that's the reason why I'd say when I was actually in Bank of Ireland, I went on the trading floor. That's when I was like, I want to go into private equity or VC. Right. So come back to your question. Sorry, just want to cover that. Why do I look, why do I want to go into VC or why do I like it so much? Yeah, what's attractive about it? The best thing I just love always kind of learning new things. So you know, I well, I like the best way I could learn an awful lot. Took on the CFA was just genuinely like learning. I'm now learning Chinese as well. I'm struggling to learn Chinese. You're learning Mandarin at the moment. Yeah, we get a we get a tutoring once a week to kind of no way. teach us. So what a perk! I won't, I won't practice it. But, uh, <laughs> yeah. Actually, I have a HSK exam, which is basically the Chinese exams. Right. So I've level one hit the end of March, so I'll struggle through that. But uh, Jeez, that's, that's amazing. It's really cool too. So I guess I just love learning new things. And in venture capital, you're you know you're meeting a lot of companies every week, and the kind of venture capital we do is like deep technology. So we look for, you know, the cutting edge, literally the latest tech that's going to, you know, change industries and make a lot of money. So I'm learning about all these brand new technologies that are constantly changing. So it's just a, it's like a, a learning curve that never flattens. It's yeah. Because everything changes so quickly. And that's what I love about it. It's just constantly learning new stuff. And even like, it's in my Ireland, like I would have then, Kind of on top of the, the investment bank and the, and the CFA, I also kind of initiated like a blockchain project with some people outside of IBI, and like that kind of really excites me. So it'd be like we we're doing this, basically just came up with a, a proof of concept project for a bank to work with blockchain right across the bank. So we've got loads of different people involved, and it's a lot of fun working with a brand new kind of technology, kind of interlinking with the whole group. So that was really cool. So that's what kind of excites me and drives me. Yeah. So. Quite like it. When I think about venture capital as a as a job, what would attract me the most to it would be to work with founders. Yeah. Because founders of companies are the people who shape the world we live in and have done for the last couple of centuries. Yeah. Um is that a thrill? Is that something that gives you a kick? Is it something that you do often or is most of the work kind of analytical in the office? No, it's absolutely like it be, I'd say yeah, probably would be like point number two and why like French capital, maybe not necessarily founders, but all the people you meet. So I get like, if I have a day where I'm just on the desktop, standing at my desk, I'll be tired at the end of it. I won't be like, you know, excited or feel fulfilled. If I have a day where I'm meeting those people at a conference, I make new friends or contacts. If I have people in, they're telling me about their business, I meet them for the first time, then I'm like super energized or excited about the day. I have such a better day. So I love when I'm meeting people and then founders are very exotic people to meet because they're they have this whole new business that they're running and they're such risk takers and you know they all have like very good opinions of different markets so they're great to meet yeah, yeah. i'd say it's pretty fascinating market. yeah 
Um, someone at your level in a VC firm, what do they do? What's your job? What do you do every day? What's the day-to-day about? Yeah, so it's incredibly varied, but you could kind of, I guess, look at the, the kind of average across the year. I'd say a lot of time goes into actually finding investments. So or a good percentage of it will be, so we'll maybe someone up top will you know, pick a, a sector that we like, that think is, is hot, there's good exit opportunities, that it's going to be, you know, a growing sector. And I'll spend a bit of time looking for good companies that kind of fit our mandate, they're the right size, right geography, and then obviously the right sector, as I said, and reaching out to them and doing initial calls with them. So most most CEOs are very receptive to a, hey, can I invest in your company email? <laughs> I'd say so, yeah. Just, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a nice email to get, so you actually do get a lot of, Probably get like eighty percent rate of people coming back saying, "Yeah, let's do a call." Or, so you would be doing cold outreach on behalf of a firm. Yeah, yeah. So that would be part of the job. Yeah, that would be the best news for any founder to get. That'd be incredible. Yeah, absolutely. So yeah, it'd be, it'd be great to get. It. Why not? So yeah, we'd spend a good bit. Of, I'd spend a good bit of time doing that. Maybe like say twenty percent of the time and doing them initial calls. Uh, another big part of it is when you kind of look at the next step in the process of investing. So the initial set, it either comes through, I'm gonna say 90% of it comes through like our partners who have, you know, these ridiculous networks across the technology world in you know, Europe, US, and China. And a lot of deals come through there. But then some of the deals will come just through this outreach, like email CEOs. But the next kind of step in the process is start forming diligence to really understand the company. So we follow on calls with the CFO, with the prop team, with customers to do business plan call, all these different diligence things you do. And that'll take up a, a pretty big portion of your time. Right. And, you know, as that progresses, you might find, you know, big red flags, stop the process, or you might, you might be okay. And, you know, you build a story, introduce it to more and more partners, and then eventually you'll go to IC, which is the investment committee. It's like a committee that sits there. Yeah, as, as a part of Atlantic Bridge, internal? Yeah. Exactly. Okay. So that would like, you did every Tuesday, you'd sit down and then you put forward the case. They'd either say, no, go away. They'll say, maybe figure this out. Or they'll say yes. Okay. So that's kind of how it works. So a lot of time goes into that diligence piece of, you know, you get them from first meet. And then if you like them, there's an awful lot of diligence. Yeah. And so, you become their uh, evangelist internally to get the firm's money. Yeah, exactly. So a lot of times, or sometimes... It'll be a partner deal, so it won't be me trying to sell it. It'll be a partner trying to sell it, and it's kind of easier for for a partner to sell it within a VC firm. So, you know, they have deals behind them. They sure. know so much more. I've only been here years. So yeah. I know. But when you bring in a deal yourself, then you have to sell it to the firm, and you have to get people on board one by one by one by one. Yeah. Until you have you know the whole room on board. Because if you just bring it in, say at IC, and it's randomly tomorrow brought a company. And no one heard before. I never told anyone about it. They'd be just like, no, don't waste our time. Like, yeah. You've got to get people bought into the company and actually believe in it. And that's yeah. you know, no easy task as a, as, a, as a rookie technologist. It would be very hard, but it would be very uh, energizing to work with a founder on saying, let's get you sold in here. And he or she would be so passionate about yeah, yeah. Um, their business and their mission. Yeah, I love that. The yeah. mission side of things where yeah, they're just so keen to get done what they're trying yeah. to get done. In that specific example, actually, when you are the evangelist, that's probably my favorite kind of situation because you're, 
on their stuff. Like they're kind of you're you still have your hat. Okay, is this Atlantic Bridge hat? On. Is this a good company? Yeah, but you're kind of on the same team, and you're trying to get it through the process. You come back into Atlantic Bridge wearing his hat at some point. Yeah, exactly. yeah that's brilliant. So that's, that's pretty exciting. And then on the other side of that, you're Mister. Like say you're just doing diligence. You're really trying to. You're not selling it. You're a little bit more objective. You probably should be objective the whole time, but you know, in order to get a deal, to get a partner liking a deal, you're gonna to have to sell it a little bit. Yeah, sure. The game. What's been the best moment of the job so far in your year, year and a bit so far? Best moment. You got a deal done recently, right? Yeah, so we closed the deal. That was for, yeah, that was definitely up there, and that was like a, a really strong Irish deal. So I think there's like fifty people here in Ireland. As uh, the company you've invested in has 15 employees. Yeah. Right, okay. Yeah, I think they announced, like, I'm not sure exactly numbers, but they announced, like, a big increase in numbers in Ireland. Like, right. Because of that investment. So that's pretty cool. And that was a deal that we actually started looking at it, like, uh, started properly looking at it when I first joined. And there were just so many twists in the road, so many different things happened. There was lots of different you know, potential syndicates that didn't work out and did work out. And in the end, we finally got the investment in. And yeah. It was really great to do it. And it's just a really strong Irish company. Like within its space, it won't go into the technology, but like they pretty much wrote the book on a thing called Ultra Wideband. Right, okay. So they're really kind of just top of the league yeah, across yeah. the world. So it's really cool to actually get an Irish domestic company. That's like brilliant. That. So that was really cool. When you talk about syndicates and that sort of thing, so someone comes to Atlantic Bridge looking for funds, Atlantic Bridge has the capital sitting and waiting, or does it go out and, and sell the project to external investors that it has on hand? So how it works is you, you raise a fund from what are called LPs, limited partners, and they're your investors. And they'll all commit a certain amount of money to you. So say, so say you have a 200 million euro fund, and you don't actually have the 200 million, 200 million sitting in the bank. Anytime you make an investment, you send out a letter being like, okay, we got 10 million euro investment, you need to give, say there's 10 of them, you need to give your one million. Yeah. Or whatever it may be. And then, like, it takes like two or three days, you'll get the money and you'll land the bridge bank and then give it to the fund. Right, okay. So it's not like you have. It doesn't sit in the AV bank. It's not sitting there, but they've given commitments and it'll vary. Like, your LPs are most of the time big institutional investors. And yeah. I think it'd be very rare for an LP to renege on a commitment. Sure, okay. It happened back in like 2008 in some firm, but... I'm guessing you can't, process. you probably can't disclose fee structures, can you? The um, way, like it's no. widely known that hedge funds would have a 2 and 20 yeah, fee structure. Yeah, like that is pretty widely known, and it'd be, yeah. it'd be similar in private equity. Ah, okay, yeah, yeah, okay. Um, so 2 and 20 being 2% of capital, so if you give a million dollars, you the firm automatically takes 2% of a million dollars, which is, Mr. Numbers... What is that? Two grand? grand? Twenty grand. Yeah. Twenty grand. And twenty percent of profit. So if you turn that into two million dollars, they get twenty percent of the extra million that you made. Yeah. Um, and that's how hedge funds make so much money, because they're in that with billions and millions of dollars. Yeah, so if you have a fund for, you know, ten billion that some of the like the big private equities would have under management, you're getting two percent of that a year. It's a lot of money. Yeah. And if you can double that, two times your fund, twenty percent of that is just insane money for anyone to have. Yeah, it'd be crazy. A little bit of financial trickery. <laughs> um, so VC would be an amazing place to work. How would you recommend to someone to get into VC um, if they're listening to this and, and they're interested in it, which I'm assuming a lot of people out there would be? Yeah, like it's, it is 
tough to get into, mainly just because there isn't that many jobs versus, like, say, an investment bank or M&A advisor, there's probably a lot more jobs like that. And, you know, for some reason, a lot of people uh, are interested in doing the jobs for you know, the kind of reasons I spoke about already. But I guess if you really, really want to get into it, it's like any job. Like you got to build your story. You can't just go day one. I want to be VC. Give me a VC job. Okay, what's your background? You know, I did study Spanish in college. And didn't really do anything else. Like you're not going to get. It. Yeah. But if you study Spanish, but you also, you know, were involved in setting up like a tech company, or you went to all these tech events and you're super interested in technology. And then you go to a technology VC, then your chances are probably a bit better. Yeah. Like for my example, I was always really interested in technology, and that was shown through Bank of Ireland when I just, you know, just initiated just a random project myself. Mm. Just took it upon myself to start up this blockchain project, but ended up getting funding. It ended up being, you know, the first Irish bank to use blockchain in a proof of concept. So it was kind of stuff like that that yeah. would help, like even more so than CFA. And then. I was looking enough at the time they weren't looking for you know Mr. Technology the most like someone who really understands technology because I didn't I only kind of had an interest in it they were looking for someone with you know strong finance financial skills yeah so that I got lucky enough that what they wanted kind of fitted me. Do you flex your financial muscles as much in this role as you would in a bank or in a private equity role? I.e., is VC as finance heavy as those others? It isn't as finance heavy. So if you kind of look at it, like say super early stage uh, venture capital is also called uh, angel investing. So this is basically when you might give 50 grand to someone with an idea at a bar and they have nothing to do with that idea. Yeah. Just give 50 grand, they go off and try and set a business. And then on the other side, it's kind of private equity uh, category. You have like uh, leveraged bio, bio companies. This would be like KKR or Blackstone buying spending like 10 billion yeah. on, on a company. So on the, on the kind of KKOR, massive buyout. KKOR is one of the biggest private equity funds in the world. And I don't know how much they have under management, but it's hundreds of, it's almost hundreds of billions in the state, yeah, isn't it? Yeah, it's an awful lot. Yeah. But yeah, so on their end, KKOR, the large buyout firms, the amount of financial muscle being flexed is an awful lot. Yeah, sure. They're super big companies. But you know, what financial muscle can you flex when someone just tells you about an idea? Yeah. So there's very little. So then as you kind of progress from angel investing up to you know VC up to later stage VC, we kind of later stage growth VC. There is a certain amount because you have revenues, you have projections, you have business plans. So you do flex it quite a bit. We actually flex it a lot more, which is actually it's actually surprisingly complex. I didn't do too much of it in IBI but kind of exit modeling, there's all these different types of shares and you can get Ooh, cap tables. Yeah, yeah. It can get fairly complex when there's a kind of and not so simple structure. So there's quite a bit of modeling in that. Yeah. And the modeling is actually, uh, when it comes to desktop work, would be my favorite type of work. Because really? it's kind of like a little puzzle. Yeah, sure, yeah. And I actually, like, that's, I could actually sit at a desk all day and just, if I had a super challenging model just to get through. And, yeah. You know, earphones in, no one annoying it. I could do that for a day. I wouldn't want to do it every week, but like, yeah, that'd be a job that I don't uh, quite like doing. No, I can see that. Um, I want to uh, ask two more things just about the, the role, but I think to give a bit of a high-level overview of seed versus uh, series A, B, C, D, uh, and so on. So as Killian says, meet a guy that borrowed an idea, give him 50 grand, that's seed capital, angel investor. 
Um, that 50 grand, if you're pitching for seed money, you'd probably go to pitch for what it takes to build a prototype and what it keep, takes to keep you uh, paid and alive and basically give the, give the business some life until it starts making its own profit, at which point you'd probably go for a Series A to grow. Agreed so far? And you grow to the point that your Series A fund allows you to grow to, hopefully grow really big and get to a level where you need even more money to grow even bigger, maybe move to another market, Series B, and so on, Series C, and yeah. eventually, hopefully, you're making so much money that you're able to self support and growth yourself, basically. Yeah. I guess for people that don't understand the VC world as well, the kind of reason that companies need funding as well, like most yeah. companies, you know, will sell something, or real basic companies, so like an import company, they'll import products, they'll sell at a margin, and they'll make a profit from, from day one. But if you look at like a tech VC company, it's not like they can just import a product. They have to build it, and that takes an awful lot of capital because you have to hire the really expensive engineers. You have to pay for software for them to use. You have to rent out a building, and while they're building this product, you're getting zero revenue. So somebody has to pay for that. And that's where you know we come in as tech VCs. We fill that gap, pay everyone's wages until you have a nice product, and then you can sell the product and hopefully you know break even after a couple of years once yeah. the sales team gets a bit of traction. Yeah. But even that, a lot of times our our money invested will a lot of times go into building sales team as well. Because for enterprise tech, enterprise software, which a lot of times we invest in, we very strong in that kind of category. Like an enterprise salesperson is like an enterprise software salesperson is like extremely expensive. So like you have to pay them a lot of money. Yeah. So it's a lot of money to kind of get that sales machine turning and working and really kind of ramping our needs that mm. way. So that's the kind of reason, I guess, why tech companies need kind of VC and why these firms exist, yeah, yeah. Um, and then <coughs> just to kind of recite an old adage about venture capital versus maybe some more traditional private equity company. Private equity company will try to make money in every deal they do. Venture capital will knowingly bet on ten, knowing that nine might go south. So maybe not at your stage, maybe not later on where you guys are, but early stage venture capital definitely angel investors will bet on ten, knowing that nine will fail and they hope that the one that works out will work out so well that it makes up for and yeah and yeah. surpluses the yeah. line. That's it exactly. And then it just kind of that number balances out as you move yeah. right towards the kind of project. Yes, exactly. So you can see how this um this is a the lower the earlier the business obviously the more risky it is. Yeah. Um Atlantic Bridge have a university fund in Ireland. Yeah so let me just kind of quickly give you the overview of the funds. Yeah. It's probably worth knowing. So it's a it's a kind of it's a later stage slash growth equity um, technology firm, and we have three funds. One uh, is that the one Mark mentioned, so it's the University Bridge Fund. Basically, what it is, it's a sixty million early stage fund. So it'll be going for like seed stage investing, and it's investing in university research. So the aim of the fund is to commercialize. So, well, so much money is getting spent on university research in Ireland. Very little, little is actually coming off the shelves turned into a commercial project. So the aim is to invest in this research, build a team, put a, a kind of a, a good commercial team behind it and then grow it and add value and add jobs for Ireland. So that's that's the, the university fund. I wouldn't work on that too much. I'm more on uh, our main growth fund, which is a 210 million euro fund. This is series B. So series B, kind of Mark explained it, looks to take around five to fifteen million euro check sizes or investments. And the sectors we go after and the sectors that Atlantic Bridge mainly goes after is business to business tech investments. 
So this wouldn't be like if Facebook rocked up here before they got massive, you wouldn't invest in that, it would be kind of a B2C company where it was when it started. We'd go for B2B tech and mainly in enterprise software. So this is software that large enterprises use. It's a pretty pretty good market at the moment. And look at semiconductors, which are computer chips, and then look at all the kind of a lot of the other buzzwords you hear. So many AI companies, A or B or drone company, look at robotics, big data. So it's very kind of like deep tech. So the founders originally set up companies like this. So we'll set up a semiconductor company, which is kind of cutting edge technology. So they all really like kind of next generation technology. It's really going to have a big impact. Yeah. Okay. And that's so that's that's the kind of growth fund, and then our final fund, which we're soon to launch. The second phase of this fund is a a China Ireland fund. So this is this pretty cool fund. This is one of the funds I've been working on mainly, and one of the reasons why I'm currently learning Mandarin. So we invest in Irish and European companies with a strategic interest in China who are looking to set up in China. So we co-manage a fund with a China-US VC so they can help set up you know, offices or make intro customers or, or just kind of give advice on actually ent entering the Chinese market. So we're investing companies who want to go there. And then on the flip side of that, we're investing in Chinese companies who want to go after the, the European market and do that through Ireland. So set up in Ireland, get jobs for Ireland, and then you know, go after European markets. That's right, okay. really exciting for to be, be on. It's a little bit awkward when you're trying to arrange a call with someone in China, Ireland, and the US. Yeah. It's some pretty awkward times. <laughs> but you can get around it. Worth it, yeah. Very good. Um, that's it on the on the venture capital. We'll see if a couple of questions come through um, afterwards. But so far, I think that's really informative for the guys. So now you're moving into the quick fire round. Right. <laughs> um, so not too quick, really. Just um, just kind of delving into a couple couple of interesting things. Moving away, maybe a bit from business and more into uh, life as a grad and what you've learned and um, kind of developments that you found over time. So one thing: what did you wish you did when you were in college that you didn't do or in university? Yeah, you kind of brought this up earlier. I thought I would have had time to think about it. <laughs> Didn't. I actually, I kind of look back on my kind of university life and you know, really happy about it because I didn't do the internship route, but stuff like everything worked out really well for me and kind of I'm doing a job that I really like and in my opinion in a good position for me. So I don't really have any regrets. I thought I had such a good time every year, made great friends traveled every summer so I really had a good time I'd say maybe one small difference I made was maybe do slightly more of that extracurricular stuff the fun extracurricular stuff as opposed to the professional development yeah I think they go hand in hand if you do it with the right people like that that model you end like that, that was very good for in a, any kind of interview but like you know had a total holiday like yeah same with the 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 McKinsey Social Enterprise, like that's yeah. like, that was brilliant fun. So maybe do a little bit more of that. They should be combined, actually, shouldn't they? Yeah, but all in all, I had a brilliant time in UCD and economics finance. So yeah. I really recommend both. Brilliant. Not much regrets at all. Um, anything you wish you did as an early grad so far? Um, I think I went into work a little bit too serious. Maybe didn't really get the balance right. I know you're not. You're not a big believer of balance, but I think it kind of suits my personality. I think I went a little bit too hard on work and focused on work and study a little bit too much and maybe didn't balance it too well. Yeah, okay. 
So I'll probably go back and maybe just try and bounce a little bit more. Yeah. I think I could probably could approach it a little better. But you know, you're young, you're you're immature. Well, I wasn't even that young, immature. Wasn't that young? You're immature. I was pretty immature. So are you yeah, talking maybe, about yeah. specifically the CFAs? I wouldn't like not do the CFAs, but I might, might approach it a bit better and just try on maybe not get too stressed about about. Maybe not try and get too stressed about the actual exams and not do stuff out of work that wouldn't kind of, you know, relate to finance. And maybe just take it a little bit handier. Yeah, sure. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Um, a life lesson that you've learned so far in your career? Life lesson. On the spot. No, come back to that if you want. Do you want to come back to it? Yeah, come back to it. Um, professional advice that you've received that has kind of stuck with you so I can help you out by saying I remember when I was and I didn't take this advice and I can't believe it I uh, a mentor of mine and Ernest and Young when I did the internship there said just play to your strengths and I really respected the guy but for some reason I was compelled to do the exact opposite and I thought my strengths will always be my strengths I'm going to go off and develop my weaknesses and I, I dove headlong into my weaknesses and it would have, in hindsight, everything works out for a reason and, and that yeah. sort of thing. And so I, I never kind of regret it. But um, if I was to start again, if I was talking to a graduate now, I would say just play to your strengths. I think it's a good idea. Yeah, no, I, I definitely would agree to that. And even sometimes it might not even be a threat, but it could be, you know, what excites you, what you find fun. Yeah. It's great to kind of go after that aspect within the grad program. So if it's going to give... So I guess to the question, any professional advice? Yeah, professional I'd advice, say yeah. For someone like starting a grad program and who wants to do well in this kind of short term, say two year grad program, I think as a grad when you go in, you kind of have notions going in that you know you're you know a lot and you yeah. can add value to the business. But in reality, like you just don't and like the business is gonna be totally new to you and it's it's tough for them to find a super interesting strategic job to do. So a lot of times you get grads who go in and maybe won't do the work that well because it's not like super interesting or whatever. But going in in your first six months, if you're just super keen and you do everything, you know, just just do what you're told and do everything to a really high standard, irrespective if it's not the most interesting thing, it'll go down very well with HR. And if you're bored of your of your grad job, which does happen in Bank of Ireland, it, it might have been a little under-challenging sometimes just because, as I said, you're brand new. You don't really know anything, so it's yeah. going to be a fun job. Just go start doing something, something yourself. Just start a project. like Pick a technology use that you think might be interesting to your company, be it a bank or like a big four, and just go get in touch with the innovation team and just start a project or just do something random, random innovative or extracurricular thing. And... It'll just look really well for HR and you'll just have a bit of fun doing it. So don't necessarily lean on your nine to five for all of your stimulation. Yeah, like if you're not stimulated, which maybe sometimes in the first eight months I might not have been, because yeah. it's just like a little low key, just go start doing stuff you like. So for instance, like a big part of the job of corporate banking would have been, you know, like reading through credit papers and writing credit papers. And that's basically like, you know, a couple of pages about a, a company, how they're doing and why why you're doing okay and we don't need to call it alone or whatever. And that was fine. We were reading through big, long documents. And I found that kind of boring. 
But then I also found that you know their reporting wasn't that great in terms of their income figures and all this kind of stuff. And like I started learning DBA and started making these really cool Excel sheets that like just gave really good data visibility and all yeah. this kind of stuff. And then so like the senior director got this. I was like, oh, this is brilliant. Like that's the best feeling in the world thing. when you feel like you're adding value with yeah. something like that. You know, I think yeah. that's an amazing feeling. Yeah. So maybe go off the beat track and mm. just try something new. Take the initiative to do something you find interesting and might help the business. And it look really good. That was probably the best thing I did in my bank role as well. Was an example of that. Just going off and trying something, and it ended up adding good value. Yeah. And you know, it's pretty rewarding. Um, that's brilliant. Life lesson, we'll come back to it again. Life lesson. Um, it sounds like professional life lesson. No, or? like just pure pure life. Um, but it sounds like enjoying yourself is definitely a theme that you've learned on. Yeah. So, so yeah, like a big kind of life lesson. Realized over the past couple years, really just kind of back to my original point of like. Maybe when I was in the investment bank at CFA, doing everything, just taking life too seriously and thinking ahead so much, like, oh, like my next job, I'm going to work really hard. So then, yeah. you know, in a couple of years, I'm on this thing, or like, you know, I have a great job or, or lots of money, but it's really just being a bit more present. Yeah. And just whatever you're doing, just trying to have a good time doing it. Mm. So. That, that's one of the premises of, of this whole grad life idea and where the name comes from is this, is the kind of, notion that when you're in your 20s your early 20s and you're a grad and you're earning your first paycheck etc and you're out in the big bad world for the first time and you've got all your friends with you that should be one of the best times of your life that should be an amazing time that you're free and you're learning so much and being challenged in so many different ways yeah and um, that should be really really stimulating and completely in line with what you're saying enjoy it while yeah. you can yeah, because you can't really get carried away. Or a lot of even my friends would be invest bank in London where it's like, you know, worse again in terms of hours. You really can just kind of, just in a sense, waste like a really great time of your life. Yeah. Because like you're young and you should be out just having a blast. Have fun. And by all means, yeah. excel professionally. Like grad life is very much about that as well. But do both. As you say, uh, development and fun should be... Uh, aligned, they should they should come from the same thing if you're yeah. doing the right thing, you know. Absolutely, I love that idea. And um, is there a quote that has inspired you at um, all? Not big on quotes. There is one. Taking back to uh, when I was in Vancouver as a salesman, I used to do all these pitches, and I think one quote that I liked was from Wayne Gretzky. He's like the, the coach, ice hockey guy, the coach. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Like you miss one hundred percent of the shots you don't take. Yeah. So basically, back then I gave like a big speech and ended with this quote, and it was just all about just going out and just taking every single chance. Because it was actually, it was like one day I just wasn't feeling too good, got a few rejections in a row, came up to this kind of motorbicycle, motorbike shop with loads of you know playing music, and it was pretty pretty intense setting. I was there in my like two dollar suit, and like it was, it was like feeling pretty intimidated by the place. Didn't want to win. Ended up just saying, "I'll oh, just go for it." Went in, they were really saying, like, gave me a beer midday. It was, ended up signing up like three of their shops as well. They had a few other ones, so it was like speaking to that, just be bold, go for it. Yeah, absolutely. I'm a huge believer in that. You miss 100% of the shots you don't take. That's very good. Um, who do you like? Who has inspired you that you haven't met before, but that you see around? And Elon Musk is banned as an answer. 
Um, I'm gonna go, yeah, go a little bit off the beat track. So yes. I watch a good bit of, and it kind of speaks to this kind of like backing yourself, what I said in the CFA. It's kind of like, I, you're able to do it, it's, it's all about diligence. So I watch a good bit of YouTube, and one guy called Mike Boyd, and basically what he does, he, he'll just pick a totally random skill, like say doing a kickflip or doing muscle ups or wheelie and a bike for 100 meters, and he'll, he has no experience, and he's not like a particularly athletic or yeah. coordinated guy and he'll just learn how to do it and he'll teach himself and he'll like time how many hours it took him to learn how to do it and he just has this like unreal tenacity like he'll just keep going at it and going and going and going you'll see like in his videos like him thinking can't do it and then coming out of that slump and then you know every single time he aces it and can do it perfectly at the end like he'll that's very cool on a bike for 100 meters where he can break the glass with his voice and it's just brilliant. And it, so that he kinda he's like a good guy, he kinda like confirms the whole you're able to do anything. Just, just go keep getting up. Have that tenacity. That's unreal. Exactly. That's the most powerful metaphor you can get. Yeah. That's really, really cool. Mike Boyd, okay. Um and someone that you have met that inspires you? Probably not a specific person, but I was in Uganda there recently in October. As you do. As you do, as a, I did like a volunteer charity uh, placement with a, with a charity called Nurture Africa, basically it's an HIV health centre right. in Uganda that kind of caters for more vulnerable people in and around uh, Nansana, which is like a place in Uganda. That's really cool, I definitely recommend people doing that, I thought it was brilliant. But I'd say there's one, there's plenty of examples, but one woman for as a specific example, she like raised five kids, she had HIV, a lot of her kids had it, she originally she like totally had like no money at all, nothing to do. The kind of the, the charity helped her out, got her like a small business, she kind of pulled through, raised all her kids, has like a small little tiny little shack shop selling like bottles of coke and like she's the happiest girl in the world. And it's just so kinda it's just so good, like everyone in Uganda are just so happy and they're just like delighted with life and just having such a great time. Yeah. And then you look at your life, which is like in your head it's so much better. You've so much more money, so many more things, but like out there everyone's just the levels of positivity are so high. What do you think that is? Yeah, it's a good question. But I think a lot of it is like they're so kind of I love the community vibe, the kind of family base, like everyone's kinda of around their family. Yeah. And like you don't really know that different. You're not like scrolling through your Instagram. Yeah. Someone with like whatever going on cool holidays with expensive gear. So it could be that. Yeah. I say a lot of people like kind of community. You're with your friends. You're with your family, which they seem to be a lot. Yeah. So I am. Um, I I have a theory about that. Well, it's pretty probably a pretty common one, but uh, something that I have learned is when death is close in your life you kind of just appreciate everything so much more. And I, I want to move that a bit away from that whole uh, gratitude bollocks that gets thrown around because that's just so, it, it's very, uh, what's the word? Cliché. At this point, yeah. everyone's just say, oh, gratitude and, and uh, kale and all this sort of stuff. Um, but like, those people that, I'm guessing the people that you saw in, in Africa, this lady has HIV and she does, maybe her kids do as well. Yeah. She worries about, how many kids does she have? She had five. She had five kids. She's, she doesn't know if one or two or three of them is going to make it to 12 years old or 15 years old, etc. And so yeah. 
she worries about that every time she sees them. She might worry about herself. And so death is just constantly present in her mind. And I just think that when you have that, death is kind of breathing down your neck in one way or another. You just become literally saying, thank God I have today. And thank God I have these people around me, etc. And um, I get the stimulation that I get from whatever it is that I'm doing. And just practically appreciating that. And interestingly, I'd actually tie it into what you just said in your life lesson about not looking too far forward. Because I think where people focus between the Western world where and the Western world and death not being in their lives and the third world, inverted commas, where death is a part of their life. Third world look down right in front of their feet where they're walking. What's next? And they sort of appreciate each step of the journey then. Yeah. Western world look way ahead, as you said. And they also look around them and who's walking beside them and what they've got on or what they're doing and all that sort of stuff, you know? And I just think that the focus on where they're walking, to use that metaphor, is the key to the difference in outlook there. Yeah. And that's my theory about it from a little bit of experience, not in, not in the third world, but um, with death playing a role, it's a huge thing. And I think if people can take that message of just look just in front of your feet and appreciate that there's solid ground underneath your next step and that sort of thing, yeah. Again, I hate that it that it goes so into cliche, but and um, that's definitely my kind of take on that. Yeah. No, no, it's like I wouldn't disagree mm. theory, But I guess one small little piece of information to play for that is like when we talk about when we go to Uganda and you talk to people about saving and stuff, the way in the Western world everybody saves for a rainy day. Yeah. They just don't know what this is. Yeah. yeah. They just they get their money for the day. Eat. I hate to make a joke, but <laughs> Ugandans probably don't know what a rainy day is. <laughs> no, that is. Um, but Uganda Central actually does get an awful lot of rain. Really? Yeah. Didn't it? During the wet season. Um, interesting point on that. Then you talked about the community. Yeah. And the Ugandans don't save for the rainy day. The rainy day comes and they're in massive trouble. They rally together as a community to take it on together, as opposed to the rainy day comes in Ireland. So long as I'm taken care of. F everyone else type of thing, which would be yeah, exactly as we just saw. That would that would be an Irish attitude. F everyone else and take a game myself. Yeah, it is. Which I love. Um, I love the community. Yeah, we moved to Dublin as well because I don't. You know, we're both from Benny Sense. Yeah, we don't. We didn't grow up here, Mm. and you kind of lack that a bit. Like you don't have houses and friends up in Dublin, and yeah, that's that's something that I miss. Just having that community spirit, which I'd really be a fan of. Yeah, and you don't uh, you don't kind of know everyone in the shops and all that sort yeah, of stuff yeah. like that community. That you build it up slowly, but it is like yeah, it's something that takes a while to build. Interestingly, as I get older, I that's something I kind of value much much more yeah, is yeah. the idea of yeah. community and that sort of thing. Yeah, sure. Um, I, I want to really quickly ask you for a book recommendation. Yeah, really actually, this uh, this reminds me of when we talked on uh, at the full moon party in Ireland. Oh, Shantaram. Um, yeah, Shantaram. I just love that book. Not mad at books, I wouldn't be reading, you know, five books a month, but that one I love. Reason being, just such a good story. Like, there's such risk and adventure in it. Like, it's just, it's just great. There's really cool characters in it. But the main reason why I like it, and it kind of ties back to what I said about, you know, stop worrying about the real cliche, as you say, stop worrying about the expensive house and everything mm. down the line, is at the very end, like you, the guy Lane basically joins the, the mafia, becomes really rich, goes up to the very high ranks of society in a sense, and then at the end it all kind of comes crumbling down, and 
the one kind of girlfriend goes away, didn't work out with her, but the one kind of dream. <laughs> <laughs> don't bother reading it now, guys. Don't read it. <laughs> but the one really valuable thing that he had at the end, or that really cool moment, the very last setting, was just him back in the slum with his friends and his like his family or Predator's like late yeah. family and they're all just like having this little perfect moment, everyone's so happy. So that was like that's like a pot of gold at the end of the yeah. long story. And if you kinda of tie it back to the very start, he's in that same slum and he's like, This is the worst place in the world and he mm. worked really hard, went on this big long journey just to arrive back at the same thing. Yeah. So it's kinda of like that community spirit, friends, family. Yeah. Well, I, so obviously I love that book. Um, what I got from it was that it showed me where the bottom really was. I used to think that the bottom was what on a global scale would probably be about a six or seven out of ten life. Yeah. Like, uh, barely paying for a house in a Western country, fully fed, bills paid, but just barely paying off the house type of thing. Yeah. That's nowhere near the bottom not, no. and on a global scale if you if you if you talk about risk and what you have to lose if all you have to lose is that you go down to seven on a global scale you've got nothing to lose and you might as well give it a, a go that's what i kind of took from that book was that the bottom was absolutely way below what we perceive the bottom to be and the bottom exists in an indian slum it doesn't exist anywhere in ireland england or um you know the people in those states with very, very hard lives, for sure. Yeah. But on a global scale, the bottom is much, much lower. Um, and I wanted to just kind of keep the momentum we had, of, because I love that Uganda uh, conversation. What is a change, this last question, what is a change that you would wish to see in the world? I'd say one bit I have to point to, which I guess is a bit cliche to throw that's a good thing that it is, would be called mental health aspect. Yeah. So I actually work with a charity, it's called uh, Befrienders, it's a mental health charity on the treasurer, so on the, on the board of directors. Basically what it does is, is volunteer service. So once someone has a really bad episode, mental health, whatever it may be, and they, they're hospitalized, and like day one when they come out of hospital, it's a really big bridge to re-enter society. And for a lot of people, you know, they don't have a really great community of family or friends to lean on, so they're by themselves. And that yeah. kind of drives into isolation, which just drives into kind of repeat episodes and going back to hospital. So what Befrienders does is basically volunteers, volunteers will meet these uh, uh, Befriendies once a week, do some kind of social interaction activity with them for two hours. So go to like a bowling club or go to karaoke or something like that, just kind of ease them back into real life. So or back into kind of being in society, essentially. So How that's what befriends do. And in terms of like what I'd kind of like to change, change would be just more of that kind of people being a bit more open about oh, mental health and it not being the big scary or sick or there's something really yeah. wrong with you. Because at the end of the day, it's not a binary thing. It's not like you have depression or you don't. Like sometimes like being a little bit sad is just a very low case a very very small bit of depression so yeah it's not like it's binary you're ill or you're not ill i love this i love this point and this is something that i think but i've never actually heard of others really speaking to before i look at i completely align mental health and physical health i think they're not together but i think they're very similar hmm. i might be a really healthy guy and have a sore leg or a, a toothache or whatever it may be that lasts two or three weeks and then i address it and then it goes away or it comes back every now and then, whatever it might be. 
doesn't mean I'm a broken, injured person. Yeah. It means I'm injured at a certain time, yeah, and then right. I'll recover. And I, uh, if I'm understanding you correctly, you're looking at mental health the same way, where you are mental health-wise sort of injured or hurt for a while, yeah. and then you come out of that, you recover. Yeah. Is that how you guys see it? Yeah, absolutely. And like, I think that's even, brilliant. Like, we're a bit more further in the chain of dealing with people who like you know have admitted to hospital, but there's it's right. more like on the the other kind of uh, scale where it's people who are just going through a level of mental health and finding life difficult. Yeah, they're they don't want to talk about it because they're afraid afraid of it. And it so, shouldn't be taboo at all. Yeah. Um, like, in any situation like that, the best thing to do is always always just lean on your friends or family because. Yeah, just talk about it. Just make it an awful lot better. Who are these mentors? So they're just they're not mentors, but befrienders. Yeah, the befrienders. So it it can be anyone. You have to you know you have to be a certain level of commitment that you can't meet them once a week because they will be relying on you for a certain amount of months. But it can be anyone. And a lot of times it's you know people with a bit more time in their hands. So maybe retired people, and it's always. We're ready to meet them, but like it's always a certain type of person that's going to do that work. Yeah, very nice and caring. Absolutely, making themselves available like that. So it's a really cool service, and hope like I've joined it in September last year. Right. But like, hope to really grow because the end of the day, if you grow that for every new you know volunteer, every new match you get on, that's a new person being helped out. So yeah, hundred percent. Really, really cool to have that going as well. And it's active throughout Dublin, throughout Ireland, or it's just Dublin at the moment. It kind of focuses on North Dublin as well. But the aim is to, to grow. There's similar ones in Northern Ireland. We'd be the only one in, in the Republic. Okay. So can we say to anyone listening here that if they are going through any hard time, there's plenty of avenues to look down. Yeah. And now you know that Befrienders is... There is well. there is plenty of avenues. Befrienders wouldn't be for... An, like an order. Befrienders is for people who've been hospitalised for okay. like a serious mental illness and okay. just left the hospital. So they might not be for you know your normal person working. Yeah. Well, there is you guys, not a if, lot of free services out there for mental health. If you guys know anyone in that position, you know of a resource now and um, that they can avail it. Yeah, absolutely. Good man, fair play. That's really, really cool. Um, and that wraps up. Thanks a million for your time. Really, really interesting to learn about that career so far and genuinely looking forward to seeing where it goes. Thanks um, much, yeah. And great. congrats with Befrienders. That's, that's a very cool thing to do. Yeah, thanks, thanks for having me. Had a, had a great time. Cheers. Okay, hope you guys enjoyed that episode. Um, I'll run through a couple of bullet points for finance-interested people in particular. So for the students out there, it sounds like a J1 won't interfere with you getting a job in finance. I know it can be very intense and sort of daunting um, gearing up for the likes of Barclays and different banks over in London. Although it does sound very important that you uh, do internships, at least one internship when you're in college and that you get at least a 2-1. Maybe the first-class honours isn't quite as important as it's drummed up to be. A great uh, tip he gave was to read papers for um, active dealmakers. So if you're going for an M&A job, look at the paper to see who are the most active M&A dealmakers and banks in the uh, market you're looking at for the past couple of years. The more active the firm you work in, the more you'll get exposed to, and the more education you'll get. So that's definitely very valuable. And also, before you go for an interview, read about the company, read about the industry as well. So you actually are showing that you're interested enough to put your own time and effort into doing this and that it's not just something that you feel you have to do. That shows genuine interest. 
He talked about the CFA, and it sounds like it's a good investment if you can get your company to pay for it. Most companies will. It will cost you about 300 hours per exam, which sounds like a lot, but when you break it up over a quarter, it's just over two hours a day. So uh, depending on how disciplined and consistent you are, uh, that could be very manageable and worthwhile. There's three exams over three years. If you work in investment banking in Ireland and are on a grad program, you're likely to earn between 35 and 40k over the uh, course of the program. So annual salary of those figures evolving, starting at about 35, moving up to in around 40 by the end of the program. You're likely to work on average 12 hours a day, uh, sometimes much longer, sometimes presumably shorter as well, but less than you would in London in a similar role. He did some great things in college. So he had his Financial Times Club, which engaged peer-to-peer -peer learning about the business world and financial world, which is a great idea. And that could easily be done over beers or breakfast or something casual. He did his UN delegate and the McKinsey competition with the uh, natural toilets. I think they're both great ideas as well. And one thing he said that he got out of both of those and out of his course was the advantage of being surrounded by really driven people. So absolutely make sure you're surrounded by people who are going to bring you up and not keep you where you are. Um, as they say, you are the average of the five people you spend the most time with. He made a great point, which I loved, about combining fun and developmental. So just because it's developmental doesn't mean it can't be fun. Just because it's fun doesn't mean it can't be developmental. And I think um, from what I've seen and what I've learned so far is that those who do best seem to be the ones who manage to master this. The ones who manage to enjoy the developmental progress because they end up doing more of it, end up going further, and so on. So find something you love doing, and you should be really good at it. And lastly then, his work with Befrienders, I think, is, is a great idea, a great mission. And if you guys know anyone who has struggled in a serious way, I think you said that a requirement is that you have been hospitalized um, with mental health. Absolutely look at the Befrienders. There's plenty of different options out there, plenty of organizations uh, catering to these people. But Befrienders is just another one to be aware of that might suit the person you know um, better than any. So keep an eye on that. And um, to revise his quote from Wayne Gretzky, you miss 100% of the shots you don't take. Until next week, enjoy.